The inequities in the healthcare industry range from the mistreatment of marginalized medical students to unchecked racial bias that can harm patients. In this episode, we'll discuss the importance of equity and inclusion in healthcare. Our esteemed guest is Dr. Stella Sacco, an assistant professor of medicine at Mount Sinai, where she holds dual appointments in medicine and medical education, and is also an adjunct assistant professor at Montefiore Medical System, where she serves as the current director for the social medicine curriculum. She's a Harvard-trained, board-certified HIV primary care physician, an innovator in designing healthcare delivery models, and an advocate committed to gender and racial equity and civic engagement in healthcare. She is a founding member of Equity Now at Mount Sinai, Vote Health 2020, and the Coalition to Advance Anti-Racism in Medicine. Welcome, Dr. Sappho. I'm so excited to have this conversation with you. Tanya, I'm so excited to be here. Thank you. Thank you. So I'm curious how and why did you become an advocate for marginalized people in medicine? Why is this so important for you, to you? It's a great question to think about. I think many of us are kind of, you know, villain origin story comes oftentimes from things that we've experienced directly. And so I am the child of immigrants. My parents are from Ghana and West Africa. And I've watched for years as my mom, who's a pediatrician, um, who has a thick Ghanaian accent, gets treated a certain way by her colleagues and gets assumptions made um, about her and her ability to care for them by certain patients. And that's just because of how she presents and how she sounds. So I, I went into medicine knowing that who I am as a member of a historically marginalized group will impact the way that I'm perceived, will impact the way that I'm able to kind of show up in spaces. So I think I kind of started off in some ways as a default you know, um, having a default interest in this issue. And then I experienced discrimination um, myself at my um, institution, Montana Health System, where I and um, seven other individuals are actually in a lawsuit for gender, age, and race discrimination. And we went ahead and took that step because we had gone through all of the HR, you know, um, investigative requirements and weren't getting any justice for the toxic work environment that we were in. And we felt like if this was happening to us as in, as, you know, faculty, as staff, certainly things were happening to patients as well. And it was up to us to really speak up and demand accountability and demand that the institution do better. And since our lawsuit was filed, we've seen the institution commit uh, tremendously to equity, um, gender equity, racial equity. We've seen them make investments um, into those departments. We've seen um, the New York City uh, Council pass legislation to really bring accountability around um, people in healthcare who face discrimination. So it was my direct experience and certainly the experience of taking care of HIV positive individuals taking care of people in New York in general and seeing, again, how my black and brown patients would be treated, that combined with my own experience of discrimination put me into a place where I was like, well, I have to do this work. So that is, you just said a lot personally, professionally, your family, your workplace, and I'm really struck by the courage it takes to that, it's a that's a risk suing mm-hmm. <laughs> a big institution and the incredible um, reward that happened not just for you but for so many people as a result um, and so I think I just really kind of wanted to highlight that the courage that it takes to say this is not acceptable I'm going to do something about it as opposed to this is not acceptable and somehow I'm going to make it through I am. Um... I really appreciate you saying that. I have to remind myself of that often because there's some days where I think, what am I doing? 
um, and what what sacrifices I have made to be able to do what I think is the right thing. And, you know, if you're in a bad situation and you're not able to stand up in the way that you want, sometimes that's okay because sometimes surviving is all you can do. But sure. I felt like in some ways I was in a position of privilege. You know, I am exceptionally well-trained. I am in a profession that's a profession of privilege. And it felt like if I wasn't making a stand, when an institution was mistreating its employees and its patients, how can we ask our patients, many of whom have you know, more economic challenges, et cetera, that they're facing, how can we ask them to shoulder the burden? And so when we think about you know, working in a partnership with historically marginalized populations, it has to be done in a way where we're willing to also put skin in the game. And many times we don't want to. And you know, you probably know this as well as others, as many, you know, high-level professionals are the most conservative you could ever find, right? Because we have a lot to lose. We sure. have financial, you know, professional ties, everything. And I definitely have lost a lot in this, but it has felt like it is in it's in the 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 kind of goal or journey of doing the right thing. And, mm. and that feels really good. Mm -hmm. Thank you for saying all, all of that and for using your privilege. You're right. It's not, um, it's not easy, but when you have privilege, how can you use it in service of others who have less? Absolutely. You know, you mentioned marginalized people. And I think as we kind of have this conversation, I just want to know what that term kind of marginalized means to you. Yeah, you know, these terms have changed so much. It yes. used to be vulnerable populations, at-risk populations, target groups, marginalized. You know, it's, it is under-resourced, um, underfunded. There's so many ways to kind of get at it. One of the things that I will say that I have started to really appreciate that um, a colleague of mine, Dr. Um, Ijeoma um, Inojim also often talks about is the importance of putting the blame where it belongs. So sometimes we'll say things like under-resourced or marginalized, and it just seems like somehow these populations just ended up that way when it's historically done or it's done by these structures, you know, it's systemic. And I would love for us to figure out terms that just really put that accountability where it belongs. Um, and so these are groups that, you know, have, because of things like systemic racism, because of things like, you know, just the different levels of historic inequities that we faced in our country's history and in the world's history, these are groups that find themselves in positions where they cannot access, um, you know, resources in the same way. They may be facing generational traumas, generational economic challenges that make it so that they don't have the same resources to be able to access the goods that make our society work and run. Um, or they, they face more discrimination because of how they identify. And so when I think about marginalized populations, I'm thinking certainly by race and ethnicity, but also um, by sexual orientation status mm -hmm. or by geography, right? Like if you think about the reality that in some rural populations, there's a marginalization that happens there because of lack of access to resources. Um, you can also think about it, you know, um, by, um, you know, immigration status, like mm -hmm. the, the the kind of our society doesn't limit who it marginalizes, right? And so the world is expansive in that way. Um, and, and I tend to really uh, work primarily um, in the intersections of gender and racial marginalization. That's kind of what, you know, the kind of focus that I tend to take, mm -hmm. um, but it is very expansive and I wanna recognize that it's expansive and it's expansive because in medicine, you know, the way that you're treating maybe your white transgender patient might be very similar in some of the ways that you're black, 
you know, um, older patient might be experiencing the healthcare system. So when we think about addressing inequities in medicine, it's because so many groups will be able to identify because unfortunately so many groups are marginalized. So can you can you actually give us some real examples? And I appreciate the intersectionality piece you're bringing in because this is how we are as humans, right? We're not just our race, we're not just our gender. Yeah. Um, but when you mentioned, you know, some of your white trans clients might receive the same poor treatment or similar poor treatment uh, as, you know, a black elderly patient. And so can you just give us some examples so that we're all, um, I think, clear about what we're talking about when we're talking about unfair and even dangerous treatment. Yeah. Right? We're talking about medical profession. If, if, you know, you're not getting proper care, it can lead to death. So can you just give some examples of like what that unfair treatment is? Yeah, it's a really good question because I think sometimes people have a hard time imagining it. Mm -hmm. So when I talk about this, what I mean is that when you go through the healthcare system, you should come out understanding what your diagnosis is. You should come out having been appropriately evaluated. You should come out being able to access the medications and the treatments that you need, right? That is, that should be the way that it works for everyone. So if you take the example of, you know, my white transgender patient who comes in to see me at one of the clinics that I work at, if that clinic has not uh, addressed the kind of inherent bias and discrimination that those patients can face, or for, for example, things like how you identify them, things like having providers that are trained to be able to give good transgender care, right? If you don't have that, what can happen to that patient that goes to any old clinic where those things haven't been accounted for is that they, they may not understand the ways in which their hormone treatments may have certain side effects, certain medications, or they may be, you know, um, named by their government name, which actually creates psychological damage, which would make them not want to engage with healthcare at all. And so what you have is people who should be getting health services who don't come in. What happens if you don't ever see your doctor before you know it, that cancer progresses or that condition gets worse, right? And so that's kind of one example um, with, with my transgender, transgender patient. The other example, if you think about it with like a black older patient, I have a certain person in mind who I treat, you know, um, because of where this person grew up, they never got past a fifth grade reading level. Um, and actually over time, as he's, you know, struggled with eyesight and other issues, can't read the materials that we give him. So when you go into a health system, a lot of times what they do is they hand you your medication list, they hand you your discharge list, right? And if you're in a health system that hasn't really thought about what it is to include all different groups, what you can get is someone who's being handed all these instructions who has no idea how to take care of himself. So he then goes home and has no understanding of what to do for his diabetes, no understanding of what to do for his HIV. And that's the person that gets admitted over and over and over, right? These are all kind of, I'll call them kind of um, uh, unintended examples of inequities. Then we add on the kind of discrimination that can happen where there are transgender patients or black patients going into health systems with people who do not like them, right? Do not like the fact that someone's transgender and treats them horrifically, is rude to them, is nasty to them. Or, you know, for uh, a lot of Black folks, you walk in and you're told that your pain that you're having from your sickle cell disease isn't, isn't real. So you don't get the pain medicines that you need and you don't. So you can see the ways in which the, the treatment from the healthcare system impacts individuals' ability to then take care of their own health. And what often happens when this happens is that people disengage from the healthcare system or they go from provider to provider to provider and they don't get the kind of continuity of care that is important to really maintain your health. And it is more likely that people who you know, aren't super well-educated, aren't white, aren't wealthy, 
will be the ones who are engaging in a way with the healthcare system that doesn't benefit them ultimately. So I hope that those examples are helpful. No, those are really clear, very concrete examples. Um, so I appreciate you kind of grounding us, grounding us in that. And, you know, as you were talking, I'm thinking, um, you know, the more, like you said, the more privilege we have, the better this, the healthcare system is set up for us, right? Um, and I have children, I remember taking them to the pediatrician once and I had been wearing a sweatshirt. And I was like, oh, wait a second. And I ran back into the house mm -hmm. and took off my sweatshirt and mm -hmm. I put on a blazer. Mm -hmm. And my daughter asked, why did you do that? We're just going to the doctor. And this was our conversation Yep. because they will treat me better yep. <laughs> if I look differently Yep. and they make different assumptions about me, which means you will get better treatment. Um, and so it was, you know, as, as a patient teaching my brown daughters what mm -hmm. is necessary so that they get treated well, and we have, we have some privilege, right? Yes. Um, yes. And so I'm thinking as somebody who is privileged and all the things that even I have to do, right? Um, the less privilege, I'm curious for, so because of my race and experiences with racism, mm. I'm aware of ways that people aren't treated well, right? Mm -hmm. But I'm curious, this is a long way of me coming to my question, Dr. Sappho. I'm yeah. curious for people who have more privilege, who don't have these experiences of discrimination or people being nasty to them mm -hmm. because just of their, who they are, um, why, like, why should they care? Mm -hmm. So it's so interesting because one of the things that um, I had to really understand in medicine is when I, when I went to school, when I went to med school, a lot of my classmates, I would say the majority, probably over 80%, were white upper middle class Americans who um, have, you know, just experienced the world as they've, you know, as they've experienced it. And when those people become patients, you can imagine that they bring their worldview where when they've gone to the doctor, they haven't had to change from a sweatshirt to a blazer. They've just been able to show up in any old outfit and, you know, and so I mentioned this because the people who are providing healthcare tend to be, especially in certain low-income areas, tend to be uh, at least at the position of administrators or, or um, you know, medical professionals, tend to be not race concordant with the folks who they're providing healthcare to. And because of that, sometimes it's hard for them to understand the lived experiences of some of these individuals. There was an exchange recent, recently on Twitter and it was, you know, um, a provider who was saying he didn't understand why someone couldn't afford a $26 medication, you know, like it just didn't make sense to him. And um, that's obviously someone who hasn't experienced living paycheck to paycheck or experienced extreme poverty, right? And that's someone who's providing care, who will happily, you know, write you a prescription that costs $50 for a copay and be mad at you when you can't afford it. it. Exactly. And so when we come to medicine as providers, you know, as medical professionals, when we come to it, we bring our own kind of historical understanding. This is why it matters that only 5% of doctors are Black, right? There's only 5% of all medical professionals in this country are Black. So that means that that race concordance that can sometimes be helpful when you're thinking about shared experiences, lived experiences, understanding, it's only 5% of us out there that are providing that care. 
in, ter in terms of just naturally, you know, being able to understand. And I don't want anyone to misunderstand or, or hear me saying that just because you're Black, you get it. That's not at all what I'm saying. I'm saying that the way that we experience the world is so impacted by how we present from our gender, from our race, from our economic background, that sometimes it makes it that if your medical professional doesn't have that lived experience, it's hard for them to understand. This is why in medicine, one of the things that we're doing to the point of like hiring and teaching and training is we're really trying to teach a certain degree of cultural awareness so that people can understand that, yes, I can have a patient who can't afford a $12 copay for a medication because they're just that poor. And, you know, that's might be what you spent on your latte and bagel this morning, but your patient can't afford it. Mm -hmm. And it seems crazy to me that we have to spend that time really teaching that, but we do. And so, you know, I think to really answer your question, there's something in there about our understanding of the world. It gives us a certain level of privilege or it gives us a certain lens. And then how do we apply that lens in our patient care? And when we do apply the lens in our patient care, how may, how may it actually be harmful at times? And what do we do to overcome that harm by making sure that we're all, whether you're a black, a brown, a white, whatever physician, that you understand the lived experiences of your patients enough to be able to provide them with the best care. And so I'm curious because, you know, ideally that would start in medical school, <laughs> ideally. Uh, and so in just your experience and opinion, I'm really curious how, like, what's the best way for medical professionals to get training to provide good, good service to their patients? Because the training of how to be a medical provider is absolutely necessary. Mm -hmm. But if you can't, make a connection with your patient and don't understand where they're coming from, it doesn't matter your medical training because they're not going to benefit from it. So how, like what, what, ha what has to happen so oh, that medical providers can be? It is competent? the work of a lifetime, right? <laughs> One of the things that has to happen is we have to change the very data that we give to medical students. So there was an article recently in the New England Journal of Medicine about x-rays and historically how x-rays, there was a belief that black people because of our skin and that we had denser bones needed more x-ray um, uh, like rays in order to be able to actually radiograph the black body, which is false. And so what was happening is black people were being exposed to more radiation uh, over the time of getting their medical care. There are still, there's a study that um, talked to uh, medical trainees that found that many medical trainees believe that black people have less pain receptors. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so they don't need as much pain medication. So I mentioned these because this is, um, some of the stuff was in like the literature. Some of it was, you know, and we're, we're just not kind of crawling out of that. So there's a lot of work right now in medicine to remove race from our clinical algorithms. Uh, when we used to calculate estimated um, glomerular filtration rate, which is a way to understand one's kidney function, we used to use race as a correction in that. We realized that what was, that was doing was it was under um, estimating how many black people then needed help for dialysis and other things. Mm -hmm. Same thing around pulmonary function tests. Same thing around evaluating if black people could do vaginal birth after. I mean, just so many things that the literature itself, the research itself seemed to suggest that black people have a different experience, let's say, than white people, and therefore you should treat them a different way. Mm -hmm. So I would say that one of the first steps is we have to go back and interrogate that literature, interrogate the very equipment that we use. Uh, the two things that have come up is the pulse oximeter, it unfortunately is less effective for picking up um, low oxygen levels in black people. Mm -hmm. And so can you imagine the time of COVID, that being the reality, there are black people who were hypoxic 
or hypoxemic, and they were not being evaluated as such and getting the care that they needed. So we have to evaluate not just the literature, but also the very instruments that we're using to be able to get medical trainees and medical professionals the right data to then act on. So that's kind of thing one, I would say. Um, the second step is, you know, that kind of cultural awareness that I've talked about. And so it's things like within medical school teaching curricula that really addresses um, some of the systemic inequities and really brings people into proximity with the groups that they may be treating. And so it's bringing patients, it's bringing people from these representative groups to spend time with, to educate, to talk. What's always challenging here is that people will always be quick to say, but if you do that, that's time away in the curriculum from other things that they have to learn, like the science. I would argue that the science of medicine is the interactions, that it is the, it's, it's the people, right? And so if we spend all of our time learning biochemistry and medicine, but we can't talk to our patients because we don't have the right kind of understanding and training, what have we done, okay. right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's, there's, I would say, you know, the kind of work number, work bucket number two, if you will, is really thinking about how we are training and bringing that cultural awareness to our trainees when they're medical students and when they're residents. And then I think the third area is around like the actual infrastructural reality of medicine. So part of the reason why sometimes you'll get a clinical person that you meet that's just like really crass and horrible and mean is because they are so burned out. They're being asked to see a very complicated patient with 10 medical problems in 15 minutes. They are being underpaid. Just the list of reasons is not, is just, it's not great. Medicine doesn't often, because especially now as we look at COVID and long COVID and the worsening debilitation of our population, medicine doesn't often allow us to have the space that we need to provide that holistic care for our patients. And so you're going to get more discrimination, more abuse in the settings where the kind of um, the the environment is really high pressured Mm -hmm. and little time. Um, And so we have to think about what we can do to release some of those heavy, the, the heaviness that makes it so that someone will dig into their natural inclination to be toxic uh-huh. um, and particularly toxic to certain patients. So I want to just kind of name that as something, because I think oftentimes we're like, well, just teach, teach the medical students to be able to talk to black people. But then when they get to a place that's so unfortunate, how can they actually do it, you know, in the way that it should be done? Right. No, I appreciate that because the system is set up. It just makes it harder if you're having 15 minute appointments. And so I know that there's something that you have been doing and I want to hear more about your care model design because that seems to be yeah. the way. Just tell us what that is because it seems yeah. to counteract what you're talking about. Yeah. So um, I often start off just by like introducing the idea of it, which is that in um, healthcare, the way that we deliver care is really tied to the way that we're paid. And so historically in healthcare, we were paid fee for service. So every time I gave you a Band-Aid, I get paid. Every time I listened to your heart, I got paid. Every time I did an EKG, I got paid. It gets bit by bit by bit, I'm, I'm getting paid. So because healthcare systems were paid in that fashion, they didn't necessarily have to work on a prevention or a wellness model. They could work on a sickness model because if you're sick and a lot of things are happening to you, I'm still getting paid. So there is a new move in medicine now to move to population health management, which really says, how do we take care of the health of a population? How do we keep a population well? And one of the ways to do that is to say, we're not going to pay you uh, if you don't keep your population well. So we're going to pay you a lump sum. So Tanya, you know, we're going to give you for Tanya's care, we're going to give you, let's say $15,000. If she's super healthy, you keep all $15,000. If you don't keep her healthy, then you have to spend about $15,000 to take care of her for hospitalizations for, you know. So what that has done is it has reintroduced this idea of preventative medicine and wellness and population health, health, right? Not population sickness, population health 
into our kind of lexicon and our, our kind of recent understanding of how we want to move in healthcare. And so health systems now are saying, because we're getting paid in these new ways that's based on value and quality and wellness, how do we change the way that we deliver care to be able to match that? So that's where the idea of care models comes from. So it's actually the way that you're, you're delivering care. And it's often done by a disease state. So for example, a care model can be a care model for patients with hypertension or high blood pressure, care model for patients with end-stage renal disease. So you can imagine all the care models that can be designed. And so the work that I'm interested in that I've done for Sinai and um, other companies is really thinking about um, that question of designing the way that care is delivered for a certain patient population. And now, you know, the kind of latest work that I'm doing with my company, Just Equity for Health, is really doing it with this lens of equity in mind. This lens of how do we address the systemic inequities in our system um, in this care model? How do we make sure that if we say we have a care model for all hypertensives, how do we make sure that we're really building in the reality that some hypertensives are going to be harder to treat because they also have substance use disorder? Some hypertensives, hypertensives will be hard to treat because they're also facing these three other chronic conditions that tend to kind of match it because of, you know, their environments that they're in or whatever. So it's really that focus on thinking about the way that we're delivering medicine because medicine is being paid for differently, mm -hmm. bringing in that equity focus to make sure that we're doing it to take care of the folks who are most historically marginalized. So the huge shift in incentives for providers almost the way I'm thinking about it, and I'm going to make an assumption here, gets providers back to why I assume they went into the profession in the first exactly. place. Exactly. Which is exactly. to help people stay well. You have said it perfectly. There is a celebration, I would say, of population health um, because it allows us to return to what it is that we all went into medicine for. I'm a primary care doctor. So I love when patients come in and we can just do a wellness visit. Oh, have you gotten your mammogram? Did you get your colonoscopy? How's your, how's your cat? Just chat, get them on their way. They're good, right? That's where we want most of our patients to be. We want them to be healthy. We want to focus on wellness versus the model that I think many of us have been trained in, which is like the patients come in all the time and they're all, because they're sick, right? And so, so what, what this is kind of forcing us to think about and to do is to say, well, how do we keep our populations actually healthy? And you know, what's so interesting about that question, Tanya, is that a lot of times we're not actually focusing on the medicine. We're focusing on what we call social determinants of health, mm -hmm. which is all of those extra medical realities that make people unhealthy. So it's your lived environment. You know, are you in a place with a food desert? It's, it's you know, are you suffering from the generational trauma of, you know, like um, having many people in the criminal justice system? Are you um, able to afford, you know, do you have employment? Do you have education? All of those things actually are the things that impact wellness, right? Mm -hmm. And so this move to really think about population health is forcing health systems and healthcare to start to say, I can't treat patients and get them well just in the walls of my clinic or my hospital. That, that work starts outside of the walls of the clinic. So who, do I, who am I partnering with? Who am I speaking with? How am I really kind of getting into the community to take care of our patients? What would you recommend for a medical professional who's in a system that's not doing this yet? <laughs> because I feel like, you know, um, there's the macro and micro, right? Yeah. And so for real change to happen, it has to be on a systemic level, without mm -hmm. a doubt. Mm -hmm. um, but I also recognize there are individuals who want to do things differently. They're just not in a place that's doing that. What could an individual do? I love that question. And I will say it is I often think in medicine that, you know, people love talking about innovation. 
innovation, which is like creating new and exciting things like new care models. That's not what we struggle from, for, from in medicine. It's really implementation. That's mm. our challenge in medicine. We know what to do. We don't know how to do it. So I would offer to that person who feels like they're in a health system where they're not doing this. I would say, well, what, what's happening in, in your local level? What are you doing in your local level to take care of some of your most difficult patients? And a lot of times what I'm finding, what I'm hearing is like, oh, we have this really interesting program where we have a social worker work with folks who, you know, whatever, whatever it is, right? And, and right away, I'll say, that's interesting. Can you scale that? Does your administrator know about that program? Can they find more resources to put mm -hmm. in that program? Can you take that program and put it into the other clinics? Mm -hmm. You know, a lot of times because in medicine, I think we're trained to kind of do it on our own. We come up with all kinds of solutions that work for us and our patient panel. When some of those solutions can be easily shared with colleagues. And then from that environment, you can start to expand out some of those solutions. So it doesn't have to be that your hospital system, like Mount Sinai took out a huge centerfold New York Times advertisement, you know, advertising that they're doing population health. Your health system doesn't have to do that. You can start from a smaller scale of saying, how are we taking care of our patients in our clinic? Does that work for us? Does that mm -hmm. make sense? Are we focusing on wellness and prevention? Take that push your administrators and your system leaders to get you the kind of contracts and then kind of invest even more in that kind of work and then start to go from there. And, you know, success does beget success. Um, and so tell the story of how you're doing it and how you're doing it well and use that to continue to build out. The other thing is also use other institutions. So if your health system is like, well, we can't do this thing, we don't know how, feel free to research or reach out to folks like me to say, who else is doing this in a certain way? Can you help me share it? with my, you know, with my internal team. And sometimes doing that is a thing that can expand out, oh, we really should be investing in this mm. thing that we weren't uh -huh. thinking about investing in. So I would say, look at what you're doing, see if you can scale that and look at other models to see if you can bring that in to start to socialize and change needs to happen. I've been listening to you talk and I'm hearing the, I suggest passion um, and drive and determination and necessity of everything you're talking about. Um, and you sound like a real advocate. I am. <laughs> Which when I think of, when I think of certain professions, it almost um, is necessary, right? To be both in order to get the eventual impact that you want, which is a well population for everybody, not just, mm -hmm. not just some, mm -hmm. not just mm -hmm. some. Mm -hmm. And I love what you say about being an advocate because, you know, throughout my training and in, in my medical career, many of the doctors that I've worked with will go so hard for their patients. Like they will stay on the line with the insurance company. They will like, we got into this profession because we love people and we want our, our patients to be well. We want them to thrive, not just be well, we want them to really do well. And so there is a passion that I feel certainly when I look at how health systems, insurance companies, just the realities of this capitalist society that we live in are beating down good clinicians or are preventing their patients from actually achieving good health. And I think it's up to us who are on the front lines providing care to say, no, we don't accept that. No, we don't accept that you'll keep this life, you know, saving medicine from a patient because they don't have the right kind of plan. Like, no, we don't accept that you're going to burn out your clinical staff, you know, because you want to make more profits instead of hiring more folks to, we don't accept it. And we're going to speak up. And unfortunately, I am in a profession as a doctor with other people who tend to be very conservative and very quiet and they don't want to rock the boat. And they, you know, we're in medicine in some ways, we're taught to be very docile. We really are. And 
part of why I'm really engaged, why I do civic engagement work and I, you know, um, Vote Hall 2020 has now become a civic health alliance and I really push doctors to engage um, and to get their patients out to vote and to just be in that world of civic engagement. Part of why I do that is because we can't see the things that we see and not speak up. We can't be in the emergency departments witnessing someone dying from complications of sepsis because they couldn't get you know, an abortion or seeing the effects of gun violence or understanding that you know most of my patients with HIV are black and brown and why is that? We can't do all of that and not speak up and say, this is what we're seeing society, we need to work together to change it. Um, and so that's where I think the passion comes from. Thank you so much um, for sharing your, for sharing your expertise, for taking the risks that you take to be courageous and not be docile <laughs> and push for what is good for all. You know, something in the work I've been doing and thinking more about is when you, impact those who receive the, the least, it's better for everybody. Mm -hmm. So even those who are privileged, who are already getting good healthcare, all of a sudden it becomes exceptional mm -hmm. healthcare. Um, and so thank you for the push that you do for that to be true for everybody. Mm -hmm. I'm curious if there's anything that you want our listeners to do, think about, but any last words of wisdom from you. Oh man, I could go on, but I will say one of the things I think we should all think about is the impact of climate change on health. Hmm. And I go there because, you know, it feels like the house is burning. Like it feels like our society is on fire. You know, there is possibly about to be World War III in Europe. There is, you know, uh, challenges to our democracy in the U.S. This, that, there's so much going on that it takes away from us really thinking about, um, our planet as a whole and what's happening to our planet as a whole mm -hmm. and what that means for us in terms of health. I always come at things from a health lens, right? And so we are seeing the impact of incredible air pollution on certain populations, right? Like there's a reason why, you know, the highways were built in the way that they were built in the mm -hmm. Bronx and that those mm -hmm. patients have higher rates of asthma, mm -hmm. et cetera. And we're also now seeing it with water and access to water. Right, right. Flint, Michigan, you know, Jackson, Jackson Mississippi. Mississippi. Yeah. Now there's a housing complex in New York that you know the infrastructure is such that their, their water isn't able to be used. We're gonna see the decisions that are made around who gets protection for safe water versus not. Um, and then all of this will be kind of taken up to another level as we see the impact of a warming climate and you know the natural disasters that will come, right? Like we talk uh, sometimes about what's happening on the West Coast. The Silicon Valley billionaires are buying their properties where they can access groundwater elsewhere. They'll be right. okay when the earthquake right. hits. Right. What about right. all the other folks? folks right. about, what about all those? So I, I would call for all of us as we're thinking about all of the immediate problems in the world to also kind of take a step back and to say, and our planet, what can mm -hmm. we do to make sure that we are doing as much as we can to push for advocacy around you know, stopping the warming of our, of, of our, of our planet and, and really thinking about preparing ourselves when there are natural disasters for those of us who are historically marginalized to be able to continue to keep ourselves safe. Mm. So I would ask, you know, our listeners, your listeners to be thinking about that and to not be kind of fully head buried in the stand with, I got to go to work. I got to do this, but just take a moment and think like, what can I do? Who am I voting for? Who mm -hmm. will really push forward the agenda of climate protection 
And what can I do to make sure that I can keep myself, my community members, and those who are historically marginalized safe when all of this kind of gets severe, which it just, it will if we don't do anything to stop it. I'm gonna end us there. Those were perfect ending words in terms of our, the collective wellness as humans and a planet. Yes, thank you. Thank you so much. I am so grateful for your time and your expertise. And um, I'm, I'm just still kind of processing what, you, what you've been saying and the call to action to take care of all of us. Absolutely. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. It was a real pleasure speaking with you. Wonderful. Thank you for listening to the Managing Well podcast. Please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to learn more about today's topic, go to www.theladipogroup.com slash podcast for a worksheet on today's episode.